Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Yorgis Sakalariu, a composer of experimental and electroacoustic music presently based in Lithuania. I've been into Yorgis's work for some time now. I first saw him probably back in like 2012, I think. He played a show in London, which was entirely in pitch black. As I now understand to be typical of his work, it was full of these high fidelity sounds that felt very close by, that triggered a very visceral response. Lots of sudden scenic shifts between atmospheres, lots of drama. I really come away from Yorgos's work rattled and as we discuss in this episode clearly that's something as well he seeks through his listening. His new album is called Fons et Origo which is Latin for source and origin. It's based entirely on recordings made at River Neris in Lithuania using standard microphones, contact mics and hydrophones. And above everything, I mean, this is probably my favourite of Yorgos's works that I've heard, I think. The thing that speaks to me most is this sense of duality, most prominently between the fidelities of the hydrophone and the standard microphones, where you've got the submerged underwater sounds, those bubbles and swishes, and outside the water, the sounds of the city, the sounds of rocks, I think it's rocks anyway. I know there's also recordings of ice featured prominently. So you've got the duality of frozen water and flowing water, the sounds of air, the sounds of water. There's so much that's speaking to me through these recordings about the notion of duality. Check it out for yourself and see what it brings up for you. It's an incredible listen, especially if you've got a really good pair of headphones or speakers. I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode. Obviously, you can head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash Crucial Listening too for all the links there. So this is the 100th episode of Crucial Listening, which is bananas. Thank you very much if you've been listening for a while, or if you haven't, I'm grateful either way. The show takes donations on coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash Crucial Listening if you want to chip in a little something to help cover the show's expenses. It's a little hundredth show present. Otherwise, thank you for your support and for listening and for your lovely comments too. I hope you enjoy this one as much as the previous 99. I certainly did. This was maybe one of my favourites. This is Yorgis Sakalariu on Crucial Listening. Yorgis, welcome to Crucial Listening. 
Hello, very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. So we're going to talk about your three important albums. Before we get into those, I want to talk about your new album, Fons et Origo, uh, which came out in February. Firstly, when you initially emailed me about it, you said that this feels like a special one for you. What is it that makes that so? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first one is that uh, it's the first time I published something on a Lithuanian label. Mm. Uh, Lithuania is where I live right now. I've been living here since um, 2018. I've lived here before, back in the beginning of the previous decade. And I have always been, in one way or another, uh, Related to some of the, you know, the, let's say the cultural landscape re- regarding music, of course. Mm-hmm. But this is the first publication. So Music Information Center Lithuania made this uh, open call for suggestions for publication. And I proposed my piece. And it was such a great pleasure to, to, to see my proposal being accepted. And them having interest in releasing it on CD as well, which is another big uh, plus. Uh, mm-hmm. I still believe in physical formats. Um, and that made uh, that's one of the reasons that makes the particular work special. The second one is a little bit more related to the practice. Uh, it's basically an exploration of Neris. It's the river that uh, flows through the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's the first time I have been uh, exploring so intensely the sonic environment of my neighborhood, literally. So it was all walking distance from where I was living. And I just find it challenging, interesting, fascinating. I cannot think of any other, let's say, more <laughs> substantial <laughs> word here. But that, these are the words that come to my mind just as a way of working, which in relation to field recordings particularly doesn't necessarily mean uh, any sort of traveling or some kind of uh, an exoticism involved these things usually as you know quite well like I I didn't go to the Amazon I didn't go to Iceland I didn't go to (laughs) Africa or an exotic Asian country yeah Um, it's just like all these discover I'm not I would love to like I'm jealous that I've never been there (laughs) just to clarify but it's all these sonic discoveries and the excitement that came out of just walking five minutes from my house to the river and just opening up my ears and getting a material that supported firmly a 40 plus minute composition. Mm. So that's the second reason why I find this to be a special uh, work. And these sounds were captured as part of the River Sounds residency, right? So what did that entail what was the brief to you and yeah what did those recording sessions look like that was another open call uh late 2019 or late to, late 2020 so I, i'm you know with the pandemic i'm starting to <laughs> just kind of like get confused with the yeah. years even all of us yeah. uh, uh so river sounds uh is an online was an online residency program and an online platform uh, exploring, focusing sonically on uh, rivers around Europe. So there was another open call, and I proposed to work, uh, explore, reflect on the sounds of River Neris here in Vilnius, Lithuania. So that was the sort of like, you know, where everything started, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. 
they made this particular online interactive platform. There are works there from all the sound artists and recorders who participated in the residency throughout the year. So I made a separate piece for that. But I just felt like the material is asking for more. Hmm. It, it wasn't just... I, I couldn't just stay to the outcomes of the residency. And that also included a recorded sound walk, an artist talk. So there was a lot of uh, thinking. There was a lot of uh, process about the identity of the sounds, what they mean, different contexts and so on. But ultimately, I wanted to do an extended composition. I've been loving this record. I think it struck me more potently than anything I've heard from you, really. One thing that really gets me about it, and maybe it's just because it's the most recent one, is your use of sudden, really sudden dynamic shifts. Maybe I wasn't ready for it in the context of a record about rivers, but there's some moments of very sudden scenic shifts, some really loud sudden sounds that kind of jolt me into a different state of listening. Almost I wonder whether it's like a kind of Am I safe for a split second, which raises the senses for a moment? What is it uh, that appeals to you about those moments of really dramatic and sudden shift and those kind of clangs of activity that certainly make me kind of leap out of my chair? Or I was listening to this in bed last night and um, <laughs> got jolted back to a state of being very awake all of a sudden. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm honoured. And I sincerely mean that, let's say, given what you wrote about nymphology, one of my previous works, this, mm. this comes as a great honor for me. Thank you so much. No trouble. And, and indeed, there is this almost contradiction with the idea of the river flowing and the constant sounds that you can imagine uh, in, the, in the beginning, you know, initially that, okay, this is probably what it's going to be like. And, and also, if you think of, like, quite important works based on river sounds, just to think really quickly, Anea Lockwood's explorations of rivers, they mm. have this sort of, like, floating uh, sense. And it was my original idea. As like I, I felt like since many of those recordings, or the majority rather of the recordings, does have this sort of like floating water river um, character, that should dictate the composition. Uh, but as always, any sort of non, uh, any sort of thought process that's outside sounds usually gets sounds uh, resisting to that. Because sounds mm -hmm. have their own life, have their own character, and their own demands. Uh, so, if I may, quite uh, hopefully briefly, uh, go a little bit more into you know this, the whole composition idea. Like, I, I always balance between Morton Feldman and Karl Heinz Stockhausen. If we think of their famous anecdote about <laughs> how much we should mess with the sounds, so I'm a Morton Feldman kind of guy. The sounds, as I recorded them, at least some that had to do more with uh, with some uh, like dynamic elements, like wind moving, banging objects. Um, what else for the crackling ice? That was another one that started dominating more and over the floating water sounds. Those were the ones that started suggesting that the composition should take a more dynamic approach rather than a more droney floating one. Mm. Uh, and 
and that's where like Stockhausen kind of like woke up inside me a little bit and said like okay let's mess them up a little bit put them into this uh, structure that is more mostly my decision as a composer and less the indication of the sounds there is this constant dialogue of course between the two uh, and ultimately I think this dynamic shift is in general an aim of mine to keep the listener uh, in a state of alert. Mm. I think that's the important thing. Like, you know, I, I want you to be at the edge of your seat. Uh, this is a kind of listening that requires more focus and attention rather than taking the more, I'll use the term loosely, ambient approach. Right, where yeah. You're gonna like have a sense that you can walk in and out of the piece at your own uh, decision, at your own pace, which is great. I just feel that the listening that I think is more intense and more profound and more meaningful is the one that is dictated by the dynamic shifts. And uh, I do have, maybe we have discussed this in the past, I don't remember. Uh, a reference to that for me is uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Uh, and the way he's composing with all these blocks of sound that, you know, ultimately they, they seem to be separated, but ultimately they form a unity, a coherent narrative. Mm. So that's another thing that's very important for me, the narrative. Uh, telling a story and not necessarily a story of like, uh, I, I went to the market, I bought apples, I ate them and they were tasty. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a linearity in the strict sense, but a threat a thread that connects things and that will uh, indicate to listeners there is something to hold on to factor that we're not just at any given moment in a space or a position in the composition where uh, it doesn't matter where we are, it could be anywhere. No, right. it matters, it keeps this direction and I think this allows electroacoustic music to be a little bit more approachable uh, rather than uh, all the previous approaches that I just described in a very crude way. One of the most striking moments of narrative I found in this record is ironically one that I feel like occurs quite seamlessly, which is the very end of the record, which sounds like you're passing out. Felt to me when I was listening to it today, like passing out of the water and into the sky. What were your guiding thoughts for determining how to end this record? Well, to start from the end, uh, again, the sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't impose any non-sonic or non-musical idea of how to finish the piece. The, fi the piece just finished naturally. The sounds told me, it's over, let us go. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm again so happy to hear um, the word passing because I think the main idea behind the piece is this passing through uh, and the reverse symbolize that uh, as I was researching if I may use the word I was reading about reverse uh, in, in most cultures they, they have this symbolic meaning of passing through crossing the river means uh, you're elsewhere on the other side is it might be the other world the underworld or anyway another kind of non-physical environment if I may call it like that mm -hmm. so I think this 
passing is important. It, it fuels the entire composition. It is the core of uh, the concept. I, I don't like using the word, but for the sake of the conversation. And anytime I hear somebody that commenting on that in uh, response to my piece, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Well, it's, like I say, one that's hit me really powerfully i really implore people to check it out so i'll put a link in the show notes and please do go and buy it listen to it enjoy it as i have so let's go to your important records now yorgis so one question i like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the term important when picking this list of three albums so was there a way that you understood that word in order to come up with the list that you did Yes, uh, it was a very <laughs> narcissistic, selfish, and autobiographical approach. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so th that is the ultimate uh, criteria uh, with which I chose those records. Which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, the Beatles. Sure thing. Twenty greatest hits. So twenty yeah. greatest hits. The Beatles. Give me a little introduction as to why this one is important to you well that's uh the beatles made me want to become a musician mm. i think uh, it, it can be like th that's a short version of the story uh, the long version was that um first of all this particular album it, it's i had it on a cassette there this copy of mine might be somewhere in a box in my family's house in Athens, but I'm afraid I don't have it anymore. The thing is, of course, that I can listen to any of these songs whenever I want to. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I think, and I think that's important. We, we can discuss a little bit about uh, mediums, platforms, and uh, live music uh, in relation to my three important albums. So the thing is, I was uh, a kid growing up in Greece in the mid-80s, and we would listen to music through cassettes. So there was this cassette edition of the Beatles' 20s, 20 greatest hits. And in fact, I'm not entirely sure that was my first Beatles cassette. It might have been Beatles for Sale. Mm -hmm. But uh, since, firstly, I'm not sure which one was the first, um, I decided to mention 20 greatest hits also because you know it's it covers their whole career from please please me up until um uh, let it be so i think it's more uh in inclusive about you know the beatles sounds and what it means to me uh, right. so again as i say in a very narcissistic and autobiographical way i listened to the beatles on cassette i also watched a vhs for crying out loud vhs which was <laughs> like i don't know how the hell the somebody was able to record uh, excerpts of the film that was made when the Beatles played at the Shea Stadium in New York in 64, 65, 65. So the combination of listening to the cassettes and uh, watching the Beatles perform, this voice inside me said, you're going to be a musician, and this voice hasn't silenced since. So that's why I had to really put the Beatles in there. And another reason I am... I chose this cassette as a, an important album is how much it is still relevant mm -hmm. to me and apparently to the entire planet. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you, like, you see the feedback and the success of Get Back documentary and uh, it is fantastic, I'll use a trivial word, that even today younger people uh, are interested still in the Beatles. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, I was, I, I am teaching at uh, Vitautas Magnus University in Kaunas here in Lithuania. And yesterday a student told me that, oh, well, you mentioned the Beatles and I thought it was too old and vintage. I didn't really care. Uh, but I somehow just got curious to listen a little bit. And there are three songs that I really love and they were pretty amazing. I'm like, okay, my, my job is done here. Um, <laughs> I was so happy to hear that. And he's not the only one. It was a particular student, a male student that I had. There are more who are like, yeah, of course, the Beatles, come on. Um, so they're still relevant. And again, going back to the narcissistic, selfish um, uh, comments, my new project is a band. So after 20 plus years, I, wow. I started a band. Yeah. And... Um, no, no coincidence or like uh, insane coincidence. Uh, I start the band and then Get Back documentary comes out and it's all about uh, a band working and the process of composing uh, in a group. And I'm like, there you go, the Beatles again are guiding me through my musical journey. <laughs> Did you watch the documentary? Yes, yes, absolutely. What do you think? Absolutely. I, I think it's a masterpiece. It's borderline experimental. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do understand that a lot of people say, yeah, it's for hardcore fans, you know, like watching six hours of John and Paul talking and uh, just repeating the same songs again and again and again. But I think it's 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 so deliberately made like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really brings you inside the almost... I mean, if as much as possible in, in the thought process and the in the musical process, and I think even if you're not a hardcore fan, you're just getting almost hypnotized by the atmosphere, and you're becoming part. Hence the duration, hence the repetitions. You're there with them, mm-hmm. uh, and you share uh, the frustrations, the agony. Uh, they are portrayed in an incredible way, like. Just between the genius and the very, let's say, human, <laughs> you know, I, I was just fascinated about it in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And again, it just it just guides me through. And uh, I was so surprised, for example, how they had like logistic problems yeah. uh, to set up something. It's like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles, the like they, they had problems booking a gig or finding a studio. Yeah. Uh, like weird like we, we're playing with my band we're playing for like a few months now three four months and you know we're trying to find the best studio like how can we get some gear to record and i was like oh we're lame you know it's like okay because we're at the beginning and then you get the, the best band in history uh, towards what it was obviously the end of their career and they had to borrow equipment from george right yeah like, That'd what the hell? Uh, not to mention, you know, the, the, they had the police shutting them down. It's like, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, not to mention, sometimes I get, like, frustrated with the process of composing with a band that were not uh, efficient enough or something sound completely lame. And then and I see Paul McCartney, for crying out loud, Paul McCartney uh, messing up lyrics or making up lyrics on the spot and uh, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure things out and everything sounding uh, clumsy and sloppy. And it's like, how did this become Get Back or right. something? Or Well, and that film also gave us the answer. <laughs> how? Hard work. 
work, work, work. There's nothing that just happens because somebody's talented. Mm-hmm. It has to be uh, accompanied. No, it has to be based on work, hard work, hours and hours and hours every day. To go back to your interactions with the Beatles originally, I don't know if you can put your finger on this, but what was it? I'm sure you were listening to other stuff prior to the Beatles, but what was it about the Beatles that enlivened a desire for you to make music? Um, I think... Uh, no, I cannot put my finger on it immediately, but if I think through a little bit, like prior to the Beatles, I was listening to a lot of rock and roll stuff, like mm-hmm. uh, Chuck Berry and Little Richard, and I don't know what else, so maybe a little bit of Elvis Presley, maybe. But I think their music was it just sounded perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also, I was magnetized by their personalities, by their characters. As that, that was another thing uh, that really um, helped me get more and more into their music. They weren't just musicians, they were larger than life. And I, I think it, it wasn't, again, if we, we can link that to the Get Back documentary, which revealed that quite a lot. They, they're not a band. They, they're not comparable to other bands. They are... A, and they are even beyond a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get away. I couldn't escape from that one. It just gripped me and never let me go. <laughs> and then I think there's also a very personal thing. It's, just, it's a story like coming from my, my family. Well, my mother had met them in the 60s. So that was another thing. Like, oh, yes, you know, we... I met John, he was the best one or something like that. Wow. So she was telling me the stories of when she met the Beatles in the 60s in London. So again, like through my mother, very personally speaking, I got this extra connection with something. It, it became a little bit more like as it was this distant, incredible, beyond, like, larger than life thing. It was also like four guys that had met my mom. <laughs> so it, it became yeah. a little bit more down to earth. So like I, the, the, the connection got a bit stronger or a lot stronger if you may say so that was another thing for sure do you have a favorite full length of theirs or one that you return to most often well three and uh, well no well <laughs> damn, this is so difficult with them uh well immediately i thought about the white album but then i said look i could never leave out um abbey road and then <laughs> what about revolver so maybe a uh, revolver uh, white album and abbey road maybe Ace. I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I think essentially they just composed this uh, continuous uh, symphony lasting eight years or something like that. <laughs> of course, the, their style changed after 64, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. That's the thing. I can so easily return to anything they have ever recorded and listen to it with the same uh, passionate intensity as if it's like the you know, mid-1980s.
Okay, Jorgis, let's go to your second important record then. So, which one do you want to go for now? Uh, my my fellow countryman, Yanis Xenakis, I suppose would be the best option, yeah. Awesome. Again, like, since we're doing this autobiographical, uh, narcissistic sort of thing here, because Xenakis, I think, epitomizes my interest in the so-called experimental music, concrete, electroacoustic, call it what you want, music. And particularly the work La Legendaire, which is my second choice. Yeah. So there's a lot of work that fits those descriptors that you just mentioned. I imagine a lot of works that could have fired you up and fired up that interest. What is it about this one by Zanakis that really connected with you? Well, see, here's the thing now, this, um, I, I, I kind of admit the, the choice here is also a little bit academic in the sense that um, I would choose particularly this work because my, my interaction with the work was mainly listening to the CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I, I'm as, as I said, I want to talk a little bit about mediums and you know how they are important. And listening to the CD was just more than good enough to open up this incredible sound world of Yanis Xenakis. Not a concert, not a video of him performing. The recording mm-hmm. itself, the recording. And I know, of course, the the work was. It included also light, and it was part of these uh, multimedia, large-scale uh, pieces that Xenakis has made. But the thing is that I tried twice to listen to it live, and both occasions were a miserable failure for wow. one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, first one supposedly was also accompanying a choreography that was, uh, I think, one that initially was uh, devised in 97 to honor the piece and have a choreographical, uh, a choreography version of it and so on. But there were insane technical problems, so the whole experience was excruciating with computer crashing and all that. And it just, the setting was bad, and I'm like, okay, this is just... I, I pretend I didn't hear that, I didn't experience that because I don't want to feel like uh, that something was taken away from me. And the second was just very bad conditions. Uh, it, it's like putting this piece in a pub almost. Right. So people were there to have a beer and it was sort of like a social event to chat and have fun. And they had set up this, I don't know, octaphonic sound system and everything. And, you know, it has all these like quiet starts and things like that. And you could just hear just people having fun, enjoying an evening out. I'm like, why did they do this? Why did this? This doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of like showed me the, the power of the recording, this, whether we like it or not, this isolated conditions of listening. Mm. And that's a lot in there. It was this incredible power, powerful moment that I have experienced. And I still remember those. I bought the CD. Well, the particular version uh, from the... Uh, I'm holding this CD right here. From It's from Cologne. They... I'm sorry, it's in German, the electronic studio in Cologne, anyway. Uh-huh. They are, because it has many, many editions and many variations of the mix of the original. So... I remember I was, and that came out uh, in the early to mid zeros. Mm-hmm. 
so I still remember listening to the piece, uh, just laying down in the dark, and I was just transported elsewhere. I cannot listen to this piece now. Like I mentioned, the Beatles, I can just play any of their songs at any given moment and just have the same intensity. La Legendaire almost scares me. I mean, it demands from me. I cannot just dive into it without a preparation. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to take something away from me. And it's going to give much more, but it's, a, it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's demanding, as I said. And I appreciate that. I mean, it has taught me so much uh, about how to push the listener to their limits. Not just please them, but make them responsible, make them participate in, in the listening experience. And that's a big part of Legendaire, uh, for me at least. I wonder if we could unpack how it does that. This is my first exposure to the record, but I think very immediately, like right from the off, a lot of the sounds are occurring at frequencies which, again, seem almost hardwired to hack your attention and make them impossible to relegate to something in the background. Like you got that high frequency in the very opening seconds of the record. How is it, do you do you think that this record engages you in a way which feels so conscious and so deliberate? What is it about this work which means it's something that completely consumes you in that way? Um, here's the thing. Um... I'm afraid Xenakis has been held hostage from the academia uh, for a long time and mercilessly. And unfortunately, they keep on um, underlining uh, the thought process of Xenakis, his methods, uh, the connection between mathematics, physics, and um, what else was there? I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) Architecture Uh and all the... um, the, the equations and the, all, all these details that, of course, are super important. Of course, if you're um, from, let's say, the, the, the creator side, you might want to be interested and understand how Xenakis uh, made the pieces, algorithms, um, granular synthesis, all those things, which he pioneered and developed. But they missed the point, and I'm, uh, I'm perhaps I am like I'm provoking right now, and I shouldn't because I <laughs> don't know if I can really back it up. But but they're missing the point. Xenakis uh, famously said that the reaction to music should be similar to this instinctive reaction that you have when you hear the clap of a thunder, mm. on on or when you are staring into the abyss. Xenakis' music always intended to be very deep, very profound. Uh, you, you had to have this sort of like instinctive reaction into it because it encompasses basically uh, how the, the entire universe uh, functions and he puts you into it and you kind of like feel a universe from the Big Bang and how it just develops and explodes and becomes this um, 
energy. It's not even a work. It's not ergon. That's a Greek word for work. It's energia. It's not fixed. That's another thing with uh, these kinds of this this kind of music. You now you say like fixed media or for a channel tape, and supposedly you have this thing and it's done and it has a fixed identity. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. Nonsense. Right. It's a floating <laughs> identity. Memory comes in. Different listening conditions play a role. So every single time you hear this thing, although fixed you get this different interpretation. And that's why I say it's kind of like this universe expanding. Mm-hmm. So you don't just walk into it. That's why I said I have difficulties just listening to it. I haven't listened to it in years. I wow. didn't dare attempting to listen to it now uh, in preparation for our meeting. I, I, I just can't, it was <laughs> wow. too much. I haven't listened to it in years because I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not always ready. Mm-hmm. And we have discussed Tarkovsky before, for example. I cannot watch it. They're my favorite seven films that are the seven Tarkovsky films. I cannot just watch them. Uh huh. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't. It's again. It's this preparation, these requirements that are needed. So anyway, going back to this argument against the academics, and my connection with Xenakis was like because I, I wasn't smart enough to understand all the processes he was using, so I just felt. I'm using this horrible word. Eh? You don't feel. You have to go. No, I felt. <laughs> This thing, and it actually leads me into this new territory of, you know, the undescribable of the experience, the uh, the experience beyond language, mm-hmm. and I think that's uh, arguably very valid. At least these days, we can, you know, negotiate a little bit more about the ineffable and how that is important. And yeah, uh, Lazender is a great example of that. I saw an article that said that this is. A headphone listen specifically, and the right was like it just hasn't held up over over speakers when they've they've played it, not in the same way as a headphone listen. What do you think of that? Is that something you agree with? It, it makes sense. I mean, of course, again, the the piece originally was for a space. It's a it's a composition that unfolds in time and space. Hmm. Uh, so, no, Xenakis' intention was not to listen via headphones. Yeah. But uh, I think, again, that's the, the, the importance of the medium and the, the magic that happens when the fixed media goes into different mediums and we listen to it in different conditions in the particular one where we can control the, the, the level of the volume on our headphones and how we're going to be seated and all those things. Uh, so... It is such a good piece that, although not intended for headphone listening, it's mind-blowing nonetheless <laughs> if you do that. So I think that I think that is important as well. Like you kind of like being able to transcend the original medium and work in different ones, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's not intentional. So this does work so well with headphones. In any case, it has to be played loud. Right, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. For, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, I think he, he made a joke once, like, my music is loud because maybe, maybe because I'm kind of like deaf already. But we, he had some hearing problems after the explosion. So, you know, he was joking about it as well. So, yeah, it, and it, whatever happens, it has to be loud. I want to return to what you said about not being able to listen to this, because... This is something I think about with records that I hold dear to me, is that you mentioned the reason being that, you know, they take something away from you, there's some preparation involved, it's a real heavy duty experience. 
I also feel like personally I I find that those experiences hold such power in retrospect that to haul them back into the present would alter them somewhat is there any element of that in your reluctance to revisit this Sinakis work Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, let's not forget, first of all, that music was not supposed to be played back again and again <laughs> yeah. and again. Uh, this is a very yeah. recent thing in, in human history. If we if we see it, you know, in the long run, it's like a hundred and plus years. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's like yesterday. But it has already completely altered uh, the way we perceive, understand, uh, make music, listen to music, and so on. Uh, so yeah, it could have been a, a one-time thing. And that would have been more than good enough uh, to make that impact on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, again, since we're talking about albums, recordings, I, I'm holding the CD in my hands right now. And another reason I chose this album, it's one of the few CDs that I have taken with me when I moved from Greece to Lithuania and then when I went to London and then when I came back to Lithuania. This one, for a reason, although I never listened to it, it's always with me. Mm. So, so it's, and it's not the, the, the collector's uh, you know, fetishism that, oh, I need to have my albums uh, or anything like that. It's a beautiful edition, I would say. But it kind of like just, I think that's another uh, element that fuels my memory. And it makes it a little bit more tangible. And I think that's interesting as well to, to think of, of course, a sound as very um, ethereal, and the experience of listening to music as very uh, as a you know as a passing experience, mm. it, it just disappears in the past immediately. But then we have this hand. I'm holding something in my hand that's very tangible and so much related to the to the experience, and it makes it so dear to me. If I if I may get a little bit sentimental here, <laughs> so it, it goes with me wherever I go. So I, I think that means that that says something. One other thing I read, which always quite excites me for some reason is that this work apparently exists in numerous false or error versions which i guess is a is an interesting notion that amidst all we've talked about that there's like a definitive or something close to a definitive version of it but have you heard alternate versions of this work that deviate from the cd version you've got like for example i think i listened to one that was mastered by Rashad Becker and I think came out maybe in the last six, seven years. Have you heard alternate versions? And if so, how has that affected your relationship with it? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the two failed um, attempts for the, the live performances that I mentioned earlier of course, were yeah. alternative versions. And, and yeah. yes, I think there are uh, two more versions of the piece uh, released on CD, a recent one as well. Uh, it just goes to show, I, I think we, what would be interesting perhaps to, to discuss here is... Um, analog technology as a, as a medium for documentation. So, you know, if you get access to those original 8-track uh, recordings, those 8-track uh, the, of, the, of the piece, the, of the tape, oh yeah, that's, that's the word, the tape, uh, I guess you can uh, pan it and mix it uh, according to some standards that you might have and someone else might have different standards. And I'm thinking now, let's say, more contemporary electroacoustic works 
where the composer has even more control of the outcome and there are perhaps even more um, guidelines of how to play the piece mm-hmm. and where to play the piece. So it makes it a little bit more um, solid and fixed. Whereas this, which is essentially classical music, uh, it's open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's interesting now that I think about it, like the same way you know, we have a score by, let's say, the Beethoven's late quartets. Uh, and supposedly they are the same if you just hear because they are the same notes but each quartet plays them differently mm-hmm. and people who are interested in this music have the, a sharp ear to understand nuances and subtle differences that are very 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 important so it might be something similar uh, here and another thing that makes this piece important I think in general is like you know you think of the idea of the remix and how we can transform the identity of the original recordings that can spill into pop music as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, let's connect it to the Beatles, uh, where, uh, when was it, a few years ago, or many years ago, I don't even remember now, where George Martin reworked on the original tapes, and again, talking about analog technology and how they were taking notes in Abbey Road, and they knew its channel, you know, what setting it had, and they knew what microphone they used and how far it was from the instrument, and they were able really quickly to go back to where they were, and then George Martin was able also to, I think they did some edits as well and uh, re-edited and then remixed and remastered. Mm. So we get these new versions of the, the classic Beatles songs. Yeah. Uh, I think the earlier albums, I think up until even uh, Rubber Soul, you could buy the album either in mono or in stereo. And now on Spotify, you have the... Well, I said a bad word, sorry. Uh, <laughs> we have... Um, uh, the 2019 remaster and before that it was a special 30-year edition and so on and so on mm-hmm. and I don't think it's nostalgia by the way like it doesn't go there for sure not Let's go to your final important record then, Yogis. What have we got? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Swans, the glowing man. Yeah. I am a glowing man. I'm a, I am a nothing man. I am. Uh, again, autobiographical. I uh, think um, there are, <laughs> very crudely saying, uh, Perhaps uh, Swans and The Glowing Man particularly kind of like blends a little bit the Beatles and Xenakis in the sense, you know, it, it is a band. They're playing guitars and bass and there's vocals and lyrics, but it's so difficult to dive into the material. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that is important and it differentiates my uh, connection with the music uh, in relation to Xenakis and the Beatles is that that's music that I have experienced live. 
uh, with mm -hmm. success, <laughs> not like the failures of the legendary, like success, like I was in those uh, uh, insane Swans concerts from, you know, the mid-zeros, I, I, I had the privilege of uh, listening to them live twice. So this time the record works more as a souvenir, as a memory. Like, yeah, it has like studio quality um, in the recording and, you know, the, the instruments are nice and all that. But I, I, I bought this album because I just wanted to sort of feel or remember something that I can by no means ever, ever, ever recreate in, in my house. Not with headphones, not with loud uh, uh, playback of high-quality loudspeakers. Nothing will ever be compared to the experience of being in the space with a band and playing this music where at some point I thought there is no way the sound is coming out of a band right now. <laughs> yeah. There is no way this is a band performing right now. And I'm not talking about the volume. Uh, it, it's very silly to just um, narrow down the swans um, skillful, masterful, whatever. Sorry, I'm, I'm losing words here. <laughs> it's silly to just uh, attribute everything to the volume. Mm -hmm. And especially if you if you consider the volume to be this kind of like aggressive uh, macho thing that we are the loudest ones, hi, hi here you go. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It's just, again, the gripping, sensual, primitive, uh, incredible experience that they offer when they are on stage. And... It just made me feel like oh, this is a turning point for me. Maybe I, I want to go back to play the guitar too. Hmm. So again, again, narcissistically and in an autobiographical way, uh, it, it kind of like renewed my interest to guitars and bands and the so-called rock music. So I'm in this point right now where this is mostly... Um, uh, it is my main reference and uh, kind of like an aim of what I have in my music making and it had to be on the list I was hesitating but said like come on if I'm honest it should be on the list but I don't think I've heard this album the album itself more than twice oh wow again gripping demanding takes so much you don't just put it and play so I, I need to do all this preparation like am I ready for this I'm not sure I'm ready for this because <laughs> It just hits me really, really hard in the best way possible. Mm. It just wakes up something inside me. It's just, it's so, it's the fourth time I'm going to use the word profound. Apologies, sometimes my <laughs> vocabulary is really poor. It just um, shakes me and stirs me and just doesn't let me go. And again, it takes things away from me. But um, the way it feels when I'm in this wave and energy of sound is just incredible. It, again, it transports me, it transforms me, uh, it makes me feel very unique. And to be honest, I don't have that intense feeling by other bands, that at least not that much, or rather, with other bands, it may or may not happen. With the Swans, if I focus, I know it will happen. Mm -hmm. So that's a big difference here, which says something about how they affect me. Take me back to those live shows. I think you said mid-aughts. What lineup was it? Was it this lineup of musicians? Partly, because after the, the famous uh, trilogy with um, The Sheer... Um, whoop, what's to be the kind? second one? 
to be kind, thank you, and the glowing man, uh, the lineup sort of changed a little bit. And then when uh, Living Meaning came out, it was a little bit different, both sonically and in terms of the, the lineup. So I'm talking about the lineup of the during the famous uh, trilogy and when they were touring constantly. Uh, so when I watched them twice, just to, as a detail for the, the Swan fans out there, oh, that's all for you now. <laughs> it, it, I saw them with a keyboard player, not with Thor Harris, the second percussionist. Oh. Wow. So that was just, you know, like halfway through the tour when they changed, uh, when they replaced uh, Thor Harris with a keyboard player. What's his name? I don't remember now. But both times, both times anyway, it was just <laughs> fascinating anyway. So I don't think, uh, I don't know if that makes any difference. Yeah. But anyway, of course, we're, we're talking about this recent incarnation of the band. Not that I don't like the earlier material. Huh? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, did yeah. you come into Swans through the early ma earlier material? What was your initial introduction? Uh, no, <laughs> because I may have been accused for, for being a hipster who, who discovered Swans uh, <laughs> after 2010, 2011. No, actually, I was lucky enough to, to have a good friend who, who introduced me to Swans in the mid-zeros when they were in hiatus. So, so you should listen to this uh, album, it's called uh, The Great Annihilator and this other one, the soundtrack for the blind and you know, these are incredible songs and so on and this is their brutal power aspect from the early days and cop and filth and so, so I was familiar with their work. Uh, but again, it, it was the time when I, I realized there's something great there. I, I listened to those albums a lot, but my creative focus was more on uh, electroacoustic music and uh, I was using a computer and all those things that of course field recordings so I just knew it was there and then when they started playing again and these albums came out and most importantly once again I saw them live mm -hmm. then it became far more relevant to me and far more important to me and then again, of course, I did look back to the earlier albums just to remember them and listen to them from a new perspective. One thing with this latter incarnation of Swans, I think one thing that really fascinated me is that they came out with... Oh, man. My father will lead me up a rope to the sky. Is that yeah, right? what a title, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was, you know, eight tracks. I think it landed at around, like, 40 minutes. It almost seemed like that they then had this sudden switch in perspective as to how they wanted to manifest. And the live shows around that album were, you know, took those songs from eight minutes, ten minutes to half an hour in length. How much do you think, you mentioned they're kind of more than a band and this is something that I think about a lot. Like, how much do you think the sheer duration of their live performances and obviously the records as well after those live performances started hitting two hours long the glowing man i think is i couldn't do quick enough maths to work out how long it is from the band camp player but it's long how much do you think duration mm -hmm. plays into this sense of almost i mean i i would say transcending their own boundaries almost it plays a huge role this is a, a thing that like I even generally speaking what it says is slow down. Mm -hmm. Not everything needs to be squished into a few moments. And it, I, I feel it's almost a resistant to what we can call this sort of like uh, 
Instagrammable lifestyle that we have, you know, the, the, the TikTok attention spam of those 15 seconds. So when, when you say like, we're going to play three songs in the next three, two and a half hours and we have six <laughs> and they're not even songs. That's another thing. So the duration also challenges uh, what we may call a song or a piece or a composition. Uh, I mean, even Michael Girard himself, I think, doesn't really know exactly how to describe it. He says, okay, songs maybe. And you see the lyrics you know, are used in, you know, in different songs and they might have a passage that you can hear a variation of it in another one. So again, it's not Ergon, a work, but some sort of energy that's been put together and released in albums and concerts and so on. Mm -hmm. So either strictly structurally, musicologically speaking, or in terms of the, uh, you know, social phenomenon of uh, like lacking time for everything, this means by default, like, you know, we have to approach this in a different way and we have to prepare ourselves with another type of experience I find that valuable these days it's it's precious we need it totally i think about it like this vertical axis of experience where instead of skipping and pond skating it's a driving downward and into which seems to run antithetically to a lot of that um quick gratification experiences that you speak of precisely precisely and again it's it underlines that we are in need of that we we cannot squeeze time uh so much it's unhealthy it makes us feel isolated uh, we, we just don't have any time to reef that's the thing uh, real music like this one real actual music that is demanding and takes time uh, also opens up the space for thinking and reflection Mm. And there I say I get in a, in a more like a wider cultural, sociological level. We need those tools to think and reflect in order to deal with things. And we don't get that when everything is in a rush. Mm -hmm. Especially these days, these are values that I think, I, being a little bit optimistic almost by instinct, I think we will have to... Uh, regain those values and look for these kinds of experiences as a healing process almost uh, because otherwise I don't think we'll be able to cope with what's happening. adjacent question maybe is and this is my last question for you Jorgis is how do you listen to music in your life day to day like what form does listening to music take are you doing it on headphones what format when like yeah how does listening manifest in your life to music specifically well first I have to confess that uh I started enjoying home listening and discovering uh, new music ever since I decided to form a band. Because huh. I have been away from all these sounds and style, let's say, for a long time. And I had to catch up. I had to find new music out there. 
and there's so much of it it's incredible <laughs> and and of course i have to admit and that's a great thing we have to you know uh, be fair uh, this streaming and the internet allowed me to have access to all this new incredible music that already influences me and affects me and that's the time where i'm super 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 attentive uh headphones uh in front of my computer with the lid down though mm-hmm. Or uh, we do have a, a small yet decent uh, home system, um, Bluetooth connection, and then again, but I'm phone away, and then just you know me and the head, two loudspeakers. But again, and this is the my main method of listening that I uh, adopted from even those electroacoustic uh, days of mine, concerts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, live music. Even if it is with recorded sounds, like if you say to me, uh, CD uh, recording or concert, I would say concerts with recordings. <laughs> I think that that's the, the best option. I mean, recorded music is dead in the sense that it doesn't have commercial value anymore. We know that it doesn't serve musical purposes, more like marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. So. Perhaps, okay, I'm, I don't want to be dogmatic, but I think perhaps uh, music's value has been put back into the live performance, the experience of uh, sharing something with other people in the same space and at the same time. And it doesn't matter if it is the Swans or Aksanakis version of an acousmatic piece or an orchestra or Paul McCartney, who's touring in the United States right now. It's about uh, people gathering and experiencing something together. So that's my main uh, listening method, going to concerts. And it can be only one time to go back to what we were saying earlier about uh, remembering and what's demanding and so on. It doesn't matter. It is one time I feel I know someone's music from one concert and going through all the discography and repeatedly listening again and again and again. That one concert is always more important for me. Awesome. Jorgis, thank you so much. It's been awesome to speak to you about, I mean, your new record fonts at origo and the three important records you picked thank you thank you so much for the very very interesting discussion uh, i hope uh, i i was thrilled and excited thank you so much for inviting me okay and to everyone listening see you next time goodbye